You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Here's Nate. Well, in turning to Ephesians chapter 4, we're turning to the applicational, exhortive section of Paul's epistle to the Ephesian church. And of course, by way of reminder, it's good to refresh ourselves in the reality that the imperatives of the New Testament, or the directives, the applications, the exhortations of the New Testament, are always embedded and always rooted in the doctrine that uh, either precedes them or surrounds them or is embedded within them. And here in the book of Ephesians, we have a very typical pattern where the first three chapters of this letter are devoted largely to doctrine and position that we have in Christ, especially there at the tail end in chapter 3 in being devoted to the great position that Jew and Gentile have together, a oneness and a holiness that is ours in Christ Jesus uh, together with other fellow believers. And so Paul here in chapter 4 verse 1 uh, gives an exhortation that connects to that unity that is ours in Christ. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, common title uh, from Paul of himself, said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so Paul uh, signifies or signals that he is moving into a new section of his epistle with a simple phrase, I urge you. He's taught them up to this point. He's even prayed for them a couple of times up to this point. But now he appeals to them. He wants to urge them on in something specific. And the thing he urges them towards is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called. He's going to beg them, so to speak, to live in accordance with their high calling in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that he's calling them to a life of perfection, but a walk, so to speak, of consistency. He says, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of that gospel message. And so he's looking for a people here that are going to be all in in their life with Christ and really uh, give themselves completely to the cause of Jesus and 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 basically respond to the great gospel with a walk that is worthy of that gospel message. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 he said I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now he celebrated the Philippian church because they were a church that was all in they had heard the gospel from Paul's lips they had received it they had applied it they had taken it and then run with it and Paul looks at the Ephesians and he says, this is what I'm pleading for from you. 
that you would walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which you've been called. I want you to be all in and give yourselves completely to the work uh, of God. Now, in talking about this with the Ephesians, he gives a few attributes there in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, these are attributes uh, or a, a list of attributes that are actually fairly common in the New Testament and especially in Paul's epistles. Uh, you'll especially find these attributes listed in a different order, but collectively, similarly together in Colossians chapter 3. And so it is helpful, though, to just look at this list of attributes that Paul lists. First, he talks about humility, with all humility. He's looking for a people who would be humble. Now, in that culture, humility was actually looked down upon. It was frowned upon. It, it was something that was sort of exclusive to Christianity. Humility was seen as uh, slavery, as service, as weakness in that culture. We live in a culture nowadays that uh, might profess to love humility, but usually operates with great pride. But in that culture, they didn't even profess to love humility. And Paul says, operate with humility. Have the submissiveness, the putting of Christ first and others second and yourself last. And in one sense, uh, humility just means to know yourself, to accept yourself, and to be yourself to the glory of God. You don't have a puffed up estimation of yourself. You don't see yourself as the center of the universe and the all-important one. But your focus is on the Lord and your focus is on others. Operate with that lowliness and with that humility. And we live, of course, in a world that is so completely self centered. You know, we love to get as many uh, likes and as much attention as we can possibly garner via the internet. We want people to notice us. And Paul tells Christians, though, to operate with a humility. Serve God, study his word, and allow yourself to become lower in your own sight and to begin to live in that kind of way. But he also says in verse 2, also to operate with gentleness. Uh, this is could also be translated meekness. Not a weakness, but power under control. Like a strong medicine given in small doses. If without those small doses, that medicine might kill a person or harm a person. But in the appropriate doses, it does what it needs to do. That's what meekness is. It is power under control. A powerful animal like a horse uh, brought under submission of a bridle. And for a person to say, I'm going to be led. I'm going to be teachable. I'm going to be led by God. You have a person who is gentle. You have a person who is meek. He also says in verse 2 to operate with patience bearing with one another. Now, patience indicates a long-suffering uh, attitude. And, of course, it requires 
here in patience and with bearing with one another, it requires that and, and takes for granted that there are going to be people in life who are aggravating uh, to us. And Paul looks at the Christians and he says, listen, this is what you need to be. You need to be a patient people. You need to be bearing with one another. There are going to be people inside the body of Christ and inside of this world that rub you the wrong way, that you need to be patient with. We're not all going to look the same, talk the same, carry the same embedded values and background and understanding. Requires a lot of patience in this new humanity that Christ has built in the church. It takes a lot of patience and a lot of bearing with one another. You know, for me as a pastor, as I stand up to teach the Word of God in, in our local church setting, I look out and I see every generation that is alive in our fellowship. And not only every generation, but of course both genders. And beyond just the generational differences and the gender uh, differences and gaps, there's also cultural, racial, socio-economical, uh, educational backgrounds and differences that are quite extreme just within our singular local church family. And that's just one church, let, us, let alone all of the local churches in our community and area. And that's just our community and area. You begin to think about all of the people throughout all of the world that name in the name of Christ. There's need for great patience and bearing with one another in a very serious way. And so Paul tells the Ephesians, listen, you've got to be patient and bear with one another. Ultimately, over all of it, he tells them that they need to love. And uh, it's sort of that final quality that ties all of the other qualities together to be a loving individual, a loving person. I found that so many of these attributes, things like patience or bearing with one another or being gentle or being humble, they can be taken to illogical extremes without love. And they can operate with a real dryness as well without love. But when love is operating, they have balance. And when love is operating, they are attractive and aren't legalistic or dry. They are saturated with love, which makes them full of life. Now, verse 3, he continues to add to this walk that he wants these Ephesians to have. He tells them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Christians are to be a people who maintain unity. This is a little bit of a strange exhortation because the way that he says it indicates that unity is already previously attained. We already have it and that we are to maintain it. I think many people try to pursue unity or attain unity amongst the body of Christ. But Paul's exhortation is simply to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I contend that there is always an invisible unity within uh, the church. And uh, this doesn't indicate any kind of doctrinal compromise or anything like that. But as we are connected to the New Testament, the apostles who penned the New Testament, and most importantly, connected to the Christ of the New Testament. 
not just in name, but the actual Jesus of the New Testament, God the Son, the Son of God, the major doctrines of the New Testament, as we connect to him in that way, we have a unity together. And Paul says, listen, maintain that unity. You know, you have fellow Christians in your community that even though they go to a different expression of Christianity in a different kind of church, perhaps a different denomination or a different flavor, maybe one end of the spectrum when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, a more Pentecostal or charismatic kind of background or a drier, more cessationist kind of background, uh, maybe highlighting one doctrine over another kind of thing. Uh, but holding to the cardinal truths of Christianity, holding to the real historical biblical Jesus, we have a unity together. And although there are variations and differences in some of the more minor doctrines, it is good for us to nonetheless maintain the unity that we have to one another. Now he builds on that idea of unity by explaining the ground that we have for that unity in verse 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A couple things to notice here from these three verses in Ephesians chapter 4. First of all, in these three verses, Paul uses the word one seven times. Secondly, uh, it's worth mentioning that this is potentially a hymn or a creed that the early church embraced. Thirdly, notice that the Trinity is present. One Spirit, one Lord, speaking of Christ, one God and Father of all. And the real thrust of what Paul is saying is that from God's perspective, God would say, I have one church, one family. These are my people. They might be in various locations. They might have uh, various flavors and styles, particular biblical doctrines that they emphasize, and sometimes maybe even overemphasize, but if they are believing the real true gospel, uh, they're my church, they're my family, and they are one in my sight. Now notice specifically the way that Paul breaks this down. First of all, in verse 4, he says, there is one body and one spirit. And in one sense, you could say it this way, it's the Holy Spirit who produces that one body. In other words, he is the one who regenerates us. He causes every person to be born again, to be born of the Spirit. So one body, one Spirit. Now in verse 4 and 5, he says, uh, one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism. Uh, Jesus himself produces all of this. The, our one Lord, Jesus, produces one hope. We all have this similar future confidence together, the consummation of all things that 
old will pass away. All things will become new. The new heaven, the new earth, we have one hope. Now, we might have disagreements as to how it's all going to unfold, but ultimately, we believe Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. Secondly, we have one faith, a belief system. Jude referred to it as the faith in the third verse of his epistle. There might be various shades and shadows of it, different things that we might highlight, but at the end of the day, we have one faith that we hold to. And one baptism. Now, what he's saying here is that every true believer who's been baptized has been involved in the same meaningful practice of an outward expression of identification with Christ. The, the outward uh, illustration of what had happened to them inwardly. And Paul might even be referring to the actual inner baptism or identification or immersion into Christ when he talks of that one baptism. He's not saying that there is only one baptism in the sense of, uh, you know, some would hold this out to say that there's no such thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I don't think that that's what Paul is referring to. He's talking about salvation and saying, listen, there's no salvation in any other. We're only saved as we're baptized into, uh, identified with Christ Jesus. And one God, verse 6, and Father of all. It's good to experience and good for a Christian to understand that we are part of something really big, something much larger than each one of us as individuals and each one of us as individual churches. I, I think a lot of Christians adopt an individualistic approach to their faith, which is unfortunate. We are connected to one another. And I think many times individual churches uh, put an overemphasis upon uh, themselves, their own success, uh, neglecting to remember the overall universal body of Christ. And so realize, remember, you are part of something big. You are so, part of something wonderful. If you go to a church that has 25 people in it, don't worry, you're a part of something huge. And if you go to a church with 5,000 people in it. You might feel like you're a part of something really big because you're part of a church of 5,000, but the reality is that your church is so small in comparison to the big thing that Christ is doing on earth now and that Christ has done on earth over the last couple thousand years called the universal church, the body of Christ. Uh, your church is actually very small in comparison to that great thing that Christ has done. Now, Paul does recognize the uh, individuality of salvation when he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this shifts Paul into a parenthetical uh, moment of praise. You know, he talks about the individual nature of Christ's gift. So he begins to quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 18. When he says in verse 8, therefore it says, again, Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So again, speaking of the individual nature of the gift of salvation, 
In saying he ascended, here's the parenthetical thought, verse 9, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So the first thing Paul is doing here in quoting from Psalm 68 is he's just making a reference to the victory of Christ, which enabled him to then give salvation to those who would believe in him. Psalm 68 is actually embedded uh, within the context of victory over the city of Jebus, which became Jerusalem in Israel, and the victory march that uh, preceded that great victory. And so he's saying here, listen, Jesus, you know, after he won his victory, he gave gifts as well. He won the ability to give gifts. But then he has this interesting thing where he talks about how Christ had descended before he ascended. What does it mean in verse 9 when it says that Jesus descended into the lower regions? Now, some think that perhaps this is an allusion to Jesus going to Hades after death before his resurrection. 1 Peter 3, 19 would be a reference here where it says, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Some think that this is a reference to the grave in general, that he descended to the grave. And some think this is just simply a reference to the incarnation, that when Jesus descended into the lower regions, uh, that's just a reference to the earth. That's what he says, descended into the lower regions, the earth. Uh, just uh, basically meaning that Jesus incarnated, that he descended for us. Uh, but any way you slice it, it means that Christ lowered himself for us. It cost him dearly to gain this position of being able to give gifts to us. And in verse 10, of course, we understand what it means when he says, and he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He has earned this kingly position, and his new goal now is to fill all things. And ultimately, the day will come where Christ does fill all things, and the new heaven and the new earth are filled with the aroma uh, of Christ. Now, in verse 11, he explains some of the gifts beyond salvation that Christ gave. He gave, verse 11, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And so he has these gifts that he gave to the church, and the gifts that he gave were actually servants, ministers, offices within the body of Christ. He gave apostles, number one, these are the men who were responsible for the New Testament, setting the doctrinal tone for what we hold to and what we believe, uh, giving us the Gospels and giving us the epistles and, and uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, these are special sent out ambassadors for Christ. And then there are prophets, he says. He also gave to the church prophets. These are special messengers for the church. I, I don't think that they're highlighted ministry necessarily is to foretell 
the future, but to speak to the church in a special way for a special season and time. There's no new revelation, but they're highlighting something from God's revealed word that is necessary for the church at a specific season in time. These people often come in the form of, you know, a once in a generation kind of mind, a Francis Schaeffer, a C.S. Lewis kind of mind, a, a, a person who speaks to us in a way that helps us become equipped for that particular generation that we're ministering to. He says also evangelists, number three, and uh, very important to the church, especially the earliest church. Uh, everyone's called to evangelize and to share the gospel, but there are, are those with a special knack and gift for the communication of the gospel where people receive the Lord when that invitation is given. Beyond that, he says shepherds and teachers. It's possible that these two words are to be put together. This speaks of the pastor-teacher role in the body of Christ. And so this one refers to the everyday ministry in the local church, feeding and tending uh, to the flock. But notice why all of these uh, positions, these men are given. To verse 12, equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. In other words, these positions aren't the positions of ministry. They are equipping for the work of ministry. And too often we have a perspective concerning the church that there are a select few responsible for doing the work of the ministry when really the entire church is responsible. And ministry goes far beyond just the walls of a church building. It happens every single day as we interact with the people in our lives. We're all called to serve and minister. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are used to build up the church for that work. And this is the ultimate goal, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he says, listen, all of this is done so that Christians might become mature by, number one, having a unity of the faith. And uh, so there's a... a, a similarity of belief and doctrine uh, and number two a knowledge of the son of god there's a knowledge of jesus an experiential relationship with him number three to the fullness of christ we're wanting to become more and more like jesus and so that we would not be carried about verse 14 by every wind of doctrine children are easily deceived. And so Paul wants the church to grow up into maturity so that they would not be deceived with false doctrines, but would cling to the truth of God's word. And so that's where apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers come in to the body of Christ, help them to be bolstered against all of these winds of false doctrine that 
or continually flowing in and out of the body of Christ. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The ultimate goal is that the church would become a self-edifying organization, growing up into Christ, receiving all his nutrients and his strength, and growing up with each other, ministering to one another. And that's when you know you have a healthy church, when they are strong to minister to and serve one another's needs. We need to build each other up in love. We absolutely need to resist the culture that forces us into independence and isolation and cling to and minister to one another. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.